Christina Schutt has been selected to become the executive director of the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Library and Museum in Springfield, Illinois. Since 2016, she has led the Mosaic Templars Cultural Center in Little Rock, Arkansas, a black cultural museum. Christina Schutt, 34, is a native of Kansas City, Missouri, and a graduate of Central Methodist University in Fayette, Missouri. She also holds two master's degrees in history and library science from Simmons University. Christina Schutt, what, can you remember the first time you were introduced in any way to Abraham Lincoln? Gosh, I must have been in grade school um, when I learned about Lincoln. And I think the, the story that was always kind of told to me was Lincoln freed the slaves. And that was the end of the story. Uh, and I always wondered what else there was more to it. Um, that people's lives are really summed up into one single event. So I think that was maybe the first time I remember really hearing about him. Can you remember the first time somebody suggested to you that you could be the new executive director of the Abraham Lincoln Library and Museum? (laughs) Well, I still find it a little hard to believe some days. Uh, It's still, I think, kind of a little surreal for me uh, to think that I'll be the next um, executive director at the um, Abraham Lincoln Library and Museum. But it's also very exciting. Um, It's exciting for um, the institution's next chapter. It's exciting, uh, hopefully, for the state of Illinois. And, of course, personally, it's exciting for me um, to be embarking on on this kind of new and continued chapter. Former Congressman Ray LaHood, as you know, led the effort to choose the next director. And in the release that announced your selection, he said that you will bring a new perspective on how to interpret the life legacy and lessons of Abraham Lincoln. Interpret that for us. So I think for me, um, when I come to um, in any space, when I come to work, when I, when I enter into a space, I bring um, all of my identities with me. So I bring my blackness with me. I bring my womanness with me. I bring all of my degrees with me. And that informs the way I think uh, about the world. That informs the way I view the world. And uh, it informs the way that I, that I do business as director. Um, so I think that uh, maybe is, is what Chairman LaHood is, is kind of referring to, is that, that bringing of my whole self um, into the institution and letting that um, guide me um, and guide, guide where we go. As you know, the history of the museum, at least since the 2005 era, has been controversial. Many of the executive directors haven't done that well. One was arrested. One was released after he gave the Gettysburg Address to Glenn Beck. I could go on and on. No no need to do that. But how aware are you of the past and our does it have any impact on how you approach this new job? Well, I'm I'm very aware. Um, I think many many folks have read um, the probably too numerous articles um, about it about the maybe troubles in the past. But I think one of the things that really maybe helps me and, and sets me apart from others is that um, at my um, the, the position I'm leaving uh, at Mosaic Temples Cultural Center, I was the fifth director appointed there. Um, I was also the 14th change in leadership for the staff, and so understanding what it um, means, right, for the public, of course, 
and bringing a sense of stability, bringing a sense of transparency back to a government institution, but also um, for the staff and helping them sort of understand and whether, um, you know, for, for what's another change in leadership and what that looks like. So um, hopefully, like I said, that'll mean this will mean a new era of stability and, and transparency for the institution. How much time have you been able to spend at the museum? Well, I'm actually doing the interview I'm here from the museum right now. We happen to be um, in town in Springfield for a couple of days um, looking at houses. But um, I've been a, a few times to the museum, and I really have enjoyed it. I am a, a huge fan of the Ghost of the Library um, exhibit. I think that's just such a fun and unique and different um, exhibit. And I'm really looking forward to all of the new things. Um, that are coming down the pipeline for the museum. I'm hoping to to get to see the the, mu- the music exhibit. It's not um, I don't think completely um, finished yet, but it'll be opening soon, and I'm looking forward to seeing that, as well as other um, temporary uh, exhibits the museum will put on. So as you and your husband talk about this new job, what do you tell him that you want to do? Well, I um, tell him that, you know, we, we really have a commitment to wanting to be involved and invested in Illinois and in the Springfield um, and Sangamon County community, that um, we believe in, um, you know, supporting local culture, supporting local businesses. And so I think for us, that's the thing we're most excited about doing and making that kind of investment in. Um, we're looking forward. We have a, um, a young son uh, who's in, who'll be in second grade this fall. And so we're looking forward to enrolling him in school and for him to get to meet all of his friends and community here. Um, and just, like I said, starting what really is the next chapter um, in our, our family story here. In your past, growing up in Kansas City, you talk about the women in your life, including your mother, who was bust, and then you ended up being bust to an all-white school. What impact did that have on you? Yeah, so um, because my mother was part of busing, she actually moved us. So, um, so she moved us into kind of um, a more affluent, predominantly white school district um, because what she saw was that resources are not um, equitably shared um, in communities. And that's something that statistics, um, you know, the data shows us across the country. It wasn't just unique to um, to my situation. But I think one of the things that that uh, informs for me is that when I was learning about history in school, that wasn't necessarily, I didn't get to learn about history that um, centered the lives of women or centered the lives of um, people who looked like me. I didn't get to learn about um, other people in textbooks that were equally and vitally as important to um, American history as the, the great men uh, who, are, who are typically written about in history books. And so that always left this sense of kind of question for me. Um, well, who were those people? Uh, what are their stories? How are their stories um, shape, uh, you know, the great men who made history? So I think that's often left me with more questions than probably answers. Um, and wanting to explore explore that, um, wanting to seek out museums um, and libraries and other places where those stories can be found. Tell us about Candy Thompson, Frida Wright, and Maggie Wilson. Yeah, so I am so fortunate that I am from a long line of um, just incredible women who uh, – 
didn't necessarily believe in just opening the door, but really kind of um, kicking down the door, right, um, of making opportunities, knowing that um, the choice that they made would impact um, the generations past them. And so um, women like my um, great-grandmother, Maggie Wilson, she saw the power of education. You know, this is a woman who um, was not able to go to a public high school um, because, of course, the schools were segregated when she grew up. And so um, there was no really public high school for, um, for African-Americans in her community. And so, but she knew that education was the way in which um, her children could succeed and do well. And so my grandmother, um, you know, having been instilled from a very early age in the power of education, um, she just decided that um, she was going to go to college. Not only was um, did my great grandmother move so that her daughters could go to um, to go to high school, go to a public high school, but she decided they're going to go to college too. And so uh, my grandmother, Frida Wright, Frida Thompson at the time, um, enrolled at um, Southwest Missouri State University. And her and my um, her sister, my great aunt, uh, Betty Thompson at the time, uh, and two others, um, another set of sisters uh, became the first um, African-Americans. Um, to attend that school. And again, I think that that has always, for me, um, shown the importance of uh, saying yes, of looking at opportunities, of, um, you know, even when people say no, <laughs> when you grow up, um, as my grandmother did, in a world filled with segregation, filled with separate and unequal places, um, my grandmother had a vision to say, no, that's going to be for me. I want that. I want that education because that's not only going to help my life, but it'll help my community's life. Um, and then when she had daughters, um, that's what empowered their lives, um, you know, to, to want to then pursue college education as well. Uh, and then, again, growing up in that community, growing up um, in a community filled with amazing African-American women, uh, you know, from the very early age, from the time I went to kindergarten, you know, my mother was talking about my child will go to college. And I think that kind of stuff is hugely important um, into, into children's lives. That's what instills the confidence that they can do something different, that they can um, be better, that they can have better, um, that they can move forward when you, when you have those conversations early. So now when my husband and I, um, when we meet with um, our son's teachers, the first thing we always say is our son will go to college. And so we want you to know that, um, you know, as his teacher, right, that because he's going to go to college, you're going to treat him and prepare him for going to college. Um, that regardless of his, um, you know, current uh, physical or developmental limitations, he will go to college because that's what we want for him. And that's what we believe he is capable of achieving. What do you most admire about Abraham Lincoln? Oh, gosh, um, so much. I think that for a man who um, taught himself really um, education, taught himself to read, became a lawyer, really um, kind of self-taught, I think that's pretty incredible to me because, again, it, it reinforces that value of education. Even if it's a self-teaching education, it reinforces the value of education and literacy and the importance of that to one's life. Um, I think from a leadership perspective, I am 
um, hugely impressed by his ability to evolve, to grow, to, um, you know, we would say now change his mind, right? Um, but really, um, I think evolve his mind, right? Evolve and grow in his thinking about um, all sorts of things. And I think that's something that is often lacking in leadership, that there's a ideology that says, oh, well, we have to say this, and that has to always be the way it is. And to say that we can't change or we can't um, grow and think of things in different ways when we're exposed to new information. So I love that as as Lincoln was exposed to new information, as he met new people in his circles and, and spheres of influence, that he, he changed his perspective. You know, he was always who he was, right? He was always that, that core identity of who he was, um, stayed true, but he also was able to, again, to change, um, to understand and to think of um, the world in a different place. What do you not admire about him? Oh, um, I don't know that I know enough about him to not admire him um, or not admire things that he did. I think that being in leadership is always really difficult. And, um, you know, having to make choices that maybe you just didn't know at the time, um, that you didn't have that kind of deep understanding of of the way in which the world was. Um, and so, you know, for me, maybe it's things around his, um, the way, you know, settlers, so it wasn't just Lincoln, right? The way, um, the idea of settlers and, um sort of the way in which our government treated the American Indians wasn't the greatest <laughs> at all. Um, and so that's something that I, I'm challenged by, right? Um, I wouldn't say that it's um, – it's hard to say, like, not admire, right? Um, I just – I don't think that's great. Um, it's something that, that challenges me um, because it challenges me to think of, well, how can we do better? Right. How can we be more empathetic? How can we be more kind to people? How can we um, learn from the things that maybe our, our forebears did, um, you know, before us? And how can we do better? A woman we've worked with a lot at C-SPAN, Professor Edna Green Medford of Howard University, was quoted at the end of the six-part series on CNN on Abraham Lincoln as saying, we do a disservice when we put him on a pedestal. What's your reaction to that? Absolutely. <laughs> Wholeheartedly agree. I think when we put people on a pedestal, what we do is we say they're um, unmovable, that they're infallible. It doesn't allow us to talk about those things that I mentioned that are, that are challenging, right, that maybe weren't the best ways to handle a situation at the time. Um, it doesn't allow us to talk about them. It doesn't allow us to give them context. And so, um, absolutely, I, I don't believe in putting people on pedestals. I believe in seeing them for who they are. Because when we see them for who they are, what we understand about them is that they're humans, just like we are, that they made good decisions and they make bad decisions just like we do today, um, that they're not infallible, uh, perfect people, but instead they are um, – you know, richly and beautifully flawed, and that that's what makes them really great Americans. Why did you pick Central Methodist University, and where is it? Uh, it is in a small town called Fayette, Missouri, um, which is sort of in the center of the state. Uh, I actually picked Central Methodist because I I went to a college fair, and at the time, I was really interested in historical architecture. Um, now, I am terrible at math, 
So I don't know why I would pick architecture as a career field, but that's what I wanted to do. Um, and I think maybe it's because that's, I didn't know people that worked in museums um, who looked like me, right? I didn't know that you could make a whole career of that. Uh, and that was something I had to learn. But when I was at the college fair, I was talking um you know, to a recruiter at the next table who has a, an architecture program, and the Central Methodist table happened to be right next to it. My mother was like, hey, you should look at this school. This this might be a good place. You know, she was thinking small class sizes, close to home. Um, this, this could be a good option. I thought, no way. I'm not going there. It's a small school. Like, no, everything that, um, that you love about it, I think, no, I'm not going to love about it. And so I had maybe a five-minute conversation, if that, with the Central Methodist um, recruiter. And a, a couple weeks later, I get a letter in the mail from her, and she just uh, it was the nicest letter. And she said, well, it was great chatting with you, and I don't know if you're going to come to Central or not, but I know that going to college and choosing colleges and deciding what you want can be a scary experience for um for high school students. And so if you ever have questions about college life or about Central or just in general about, you know, what it's like to, to be in college, uh, you know, here's my, my cell phone, here's my contact information, and I'd be happy to chat with you. And I was really impressed with that. Um, it's very rare these days where people send you handwritten notes. And I just thought that was so nice. So I agreed to go down um, for a visit on campus. And when I got there, uh, I just fell in love with the place. One of the things that I really um, enjoyed was that the dean of students um, at the time, Ken Oliver, he actually stood up separately at the parent. There was a parent meeting and a student meeting, and he gave out his personal, you know, his home phone number to um, to both the parents and the students and said, you know, if there's ever anything that happens, if you ever are in a situation where for whatever reason, you cannot drive home safely or you can't get a ride home safely. You call me, no questions asked, and I'll come get you. Because I don't want one of my students to, um, you know, end up in a ditch somewhere. And, again, that just meant so much, that kind of personal touch and personal um, care and thinking about their students. And so, um, so that's really how I ended up at Central Methodist. Uh, I absolutely um, loved my time there. I loved the opportunity to interact with the faculty, to present at conferences, to do things that you often don't get to do when you go to those kind of bigger schools. So that personalized approach, I think, was really um, integral um, and important to my own development as a as a student and as a kind of young budding historian. What was your major, and did anybody teach you anything about Abraham Lincoln? So my major was um, history, and I had a minor in um, religion, and I I didn't take any classes, actually, um, in Lincoln. I, I took a class in um, actually teaching public history, and it was primarily focused on how to teach, use public history as a way to teach kind of secondary um, and college-age students about um, so, well, sec- yeah, secondary level and college age students about public history, how to do public history, how to um, do that kind of local um, oral history traditions, those kind of things. And I think that course, probably more so than anything else, um, was really helpful. It was a class I actually asked to teach. So my um, my mentor, uh, Bob Wiegers, um, offered to teach it when I said I was interested in learning more about public history. And so um, so he actually allowed me to, to teach like two of the classes, two or three of the classes um, to my fellow students, which was super cool and very generous of him. 
Um, but we got to do kind of that hands-on history work. And I think that, you know, for this museum and the library, that's one of the things that I for sure bring with me, that helping to make Lincoln relatable to people, to think about that hands-on history. You know, I remember um, even further back in high school where I had a history teacher who, when we were learning about, you know, battles um, that happened right in the Civil War or in the American Revolution, he would take us out into the football field and he had like an old, you know, cannonball and he would line us up in rows the way that they would be. And then he would walk down the football field and he would say, okay, um, this is what would have happened, right? And he would show us, you know, this row of people. So this is why the military strategy had to change. And so it made history come alive. It made history relatable. It helped really lift the words that are off the pages of textbooks and make them accessible um, to me as a student. And so to have that and be able to um, learn how to teach that in college, I think, um, really has shaped my understanding about history, that I'm much more interested in not just reading about the life of Lincoln, but I'm interested in experiencing that. You know, what was it it's for Lincoln to grow up, you know, very poor, right, um, in Kentucky and then ultimately moving to, to Illinois, what, what was that like for him? What were the kinds of foods that he would have eaten? What were the things he would have thought about or experienced? Um, how did that shape his understanding about what it meant to grow up poor and rural America? Um, so I think those are the kinds of things that are really um, exciting. Right? What's the best book you've ever read on Abraham Lincoln? Oh, gosh. Um, so I um, am reading White's book on, I guess it's A. Lincoln, uh, and that's really interesting. I kind of like his um, meandering sometimes, so he'll be talking about stuff, and then he'll he'll put like a little sidebar, right, um, as part of the story. So I love the narrative approach to it. Uh, I also really appreciate um, They Knew Lincoln by um, John Washington, and which I think was edited by Kate uh, Master. And uh, that's really fun because coming from an African-American history museum, getting to hear about the people who worked um, in the White House but also around um, that community and that neighborhood uh, is really exciting to hear their perspectives on that. I'm sure you know that uh, anybody associated with Abraham Lincoln from Springfield, Illinois, running that museum is in the middle of what could be a controversy on an hour-to-hour basis. So let me <laughs> let me take you through a couple of those. State museums always are. <laughs> when Anything you, in government's always a little bit controversial, but go ahead. <laughs> when you walk into this job, how much money does the library museum have, and where does it come from? Yeah, so um, a lot of the um, – my understanding right now is that a lot of the um, – the bulk of the money comes through um, state government kind of appropriations and revenue, and then revenue generated through ticket sales. Um, you know, so people coming through the front door. Um, you know, not having kind of seen all of the ins and outs of the budget, it's a little hard for me to kind of answer uh, more specifically about that. But um, but this is a largely a state-supported museum. Um, they do also receive some funding from through the foundation for things like special programs and um, exhibits as well. But, um, you know, it, it is a, a state-supported museum. And, and again, with the people coming, um, ticket sales and things through the doors, that's also uh, important uh, for the museum and to, you know, maintain programming and to really to grow programming. 
What's your relationship to the foundation and who's your boss? So um, I report to the board, uh, and so Chairman LaHood, as you mentioned, is, is kind of my boss, him and the rest of the board, uh, and the board is appointed by the governor, and so they serve on kind of term positions through that. Um, so that's my, my boss. Uh, the um, you know foundation recently uh, appointed a new executive director as well, and so um, our hope and goal is that we'll be able really to work kind of in sync together to support and to uplift the lifetimes and legacy of Abraham Lincoln. Um, so, yeah. What do you, do you do in your job versus what does the executive director of the foundation do? Yeah, well, um, Aaron, the, the executive director, um, will be primarily focused more on kind of foundation work, um, focused on giving financial supporting of the museum and really financial supporting of the programs and the um, exhibitions and educational um, work that, that the museum does here. Um, so, you know, we do have a little bit kind of different duties. Her um, position is um, reports to her board, to the foundation board, but again, I, I hope that it'll be a, a relationship where we can really work in sync together. Um, because ultimately, what the public sees is not two separate entities, but they see, um, you know, one entity that is that is lifting up the, the times and, and legacy of, of Lincoln. So um, that's kind of, you know, it's it's separate, but it's also um, what we hope to be um, a relationship that will really be supportive, right, um, and that will help us to, to move the mission forward. And that goes really not only for them, but any kind of friends or foundation group. You know, you want it to be a relationship where, you know, they're supporting and, and fiscally supporting and helping to move the museum and library's mission forward. There was a split years ago between a group that was a part of the Abraham Lincoln Association there in Springfield, and they formed the Lincoln Forum. There are disagreements among the different local groups versus the national groups. A lot of people who are scholars of Lincoln dot the I and cross the T every hour on the hour. How do you plan to be ready to step in front of these groups and represent the library and museum? Sure. Well, I think that goes back to a little bit on Lincoln and the diversity of, of Lincoln, right? I mean, even this political cycle, we've seen um, people on both sides of the political spectrum quoting Lincoln, talking about Lincoln. And so I think that often, you know, just shows you the myriad of ways in which people interpret Lincoln today, in which they think about him. Um, you know, as far as kind of what we'll be doing here is, you know, we'll be hoping we're, I'm really hoping to um, center the museum and library as a place and forum for all those kind of maybe competing voices to be heard, right? Um, to have a space to, to talk, to dialogue, realizing that we may not always agree about things. Um, we don't always agree about the way that history is interpreted, told, um, shared. Um, but what we can do is we can all appreciate the importance and um, the legacy of Lincoln and that he's just as relevant today as he was um, during his lifetime. So that's something that I think, um, regardless of, of what the, the Lincoln group's affiliation um, or what the kind of minutiae disagreements are, that's something we can all agree on. So this is a generalized question, and, and it's... <laughs> It's dangerous to step into this uh, arena. But how do African-Americans that you know, maybe yourself, look at Lincoln compared to how you see most 
not most, but a lot of white people look at Lincoln. What's the difference from what you've observed? Well, I, um, you know, I think it's, it's like you said, it's always hard to put people into groups and categories because, um, as you just mentioned, right, even, um, you know, white scholars disagree, right, on um, this factor, that factor, this way of interpretation or that meaning, right, about Lincoln. You know, I would say, um, again, very generalizing uh, overall, I think that um, both African-Americans and, um, you know, white scholars appreciate Lincoln. They appreciate who Lincoln is. Um, I would definitely say that, um, as you mentioned earlier um, from the Howard University scholar, that uh, African-Americans as a general group tend to maybe view Lincoln sort of warts and all. So being able to see the full spectrum of a person, being able to appreciate, um, you know, who Lincoln was uh, and who Lincoln is today, but also to understand that, you know, there were um, things that were maybe challenging about, you know, stuff that Lincoln said or stuff that Lincoln did that maybe challenge, right, Um, or that African-Americans might disagree with. Um, You know, Lincoln was a person who at one point believed in kind of that, um, that it was impossible, right? It would be difficult for African-Americans and and whites to live um, in a country, uh, you know, to live, you know, with um, their former slavers. And he ultimately came to change his mind about that. Um, because of his relationship and his communication with African-American soldiers, seeing their um, grit and determination and perseverance on the battlefield um, through his, you know, conversation with Frederick Douglass, right, um, and others. And so I think that um, being able, to, again, to see that full spectrum and that full picture is something that I hope to bring, you know, as an African-American woman, um, while still honoring Lincoln, for who he who he was and, and who he is today. How much diversity is there among the staff? Um, I don't know um, specifically that. Um, like I said, I, I've kind of only gotten to visit the museum and library as a as a public person, as a as an external person. So I'm just um, now and in June when I officially kind of um, start on the on the daily basis, um, getting to kind of sink my teeth into that. What is your legacy at the Mosaic Templars Museum, and what does that stand for? Yeah, um, so I would say that um, by far, um, probably museum accreditation and um, is probably the most public um, thing that I um, brought to the museum. Mosaic Templars Cultural Center um, is the ninth Black Culture Museum in the United States to be nationally accredited by the American Alliance of Museums, and it was a a long process, it was a hard process, but it was something that really um, was an external confirmation of inward work that we did. And so, you know, internally, I think bringing a sense of stability to the institution was probably the biggest sort of internal um, thing that was done, um, helping to kind of refocus um, work on education, on um, kind of untold stories um, was, you know, something I did as well. And again, that's something that I think has always been, as we've talked about, right, it's always been with me. What are those untold stories? What are those um, untapped stories in history? And how do those stories inform the kind of larger, more encompassing narrative um, of American history? How do those stories shape American history? What are those nuances that we can tease out um, and inform 
you know, I, we was, I was so privileged to get to um, share so many people's stories um, at Mosaic, whether it was, you know, the story of the, one of the oldest, if not the oldest, um, black-owned um, beauty shop and beauty college, um, definitely in Arkansas, but probably in the country, um, the Azalvatex College of Beauty Culture, which has been in business for, I think, 92, 93 years now, um, and all owned by black women, which was incredible getting to share that story. Um, or getting to the, share the stories of, um, you know, young men in the in the timber industry in Arkansas who literally went to World War One, you know, to the the trenches of Europe during World War One and built right the trenches and provided support um, for for building those trenches, right? Things that are that were vital to the war. Um, so I think again, people oftentimes in the past, right, the way we've thought about history is those stories get relegated to the sidelines. They get not talked about in the textbooks. They get not talked about um, in the museum exhibits. So being able to bring those kind of stories to light, I think, um, was something that I will always um, remember and and think of as my legacy as well. At age 34, you're leaving a successful job in Little Rock, Arkansas coming to the Lincoln Museum and Library, does one like you have a contract? Um, yes, yeah. So I um, will have a, a contract with the state of Illinois. I believe it's for four years. Um, and then, um, you know, obviously I, I hope that uh, we'll see what my work is like, and, and hopefully it'll be good, and, and it'll be a contract that's renewed. But, um, but, yep, I do have a contract with Illinois. So how do you protect yourself? From falling into a trap like uh, the former executive director who lost his job because of the controversy in sending a copy of the handwritten Gettysburg Address down to Glenn Beck. Yeah, well, you know, one of the things um, I did get the opportunity to read um, the the kind of report, um, the inspector's report about that. And one of the things that really stood out to me was not um, the action, right, of sending the um, report, but it was completely disregarding um, staff and best practices, um, which said you shouldn't send the Gettysburg Address, right? Um, and so one of the things that, for me, um, I'm less interested in protecting myself and my own kind of self-interest um, I'm more interested in protecting the institution because ultimately, no matter how long my tenure is as director, the museum will go on um, after me. And so when I think about decisions that I make, I think about it seven generations past me. So that point in time in which I won't know anyone, right? It's not my children or my children's children, right? Um, it's who will the institution be for um, seven generations from now? What will it be about? How is the decision I make today affect that um, that person, that director, seven generations from now? So that really informs um, kind of my thinking about things. I think, you know, that coupled with, um, you know, I have a very sort of strong sense of um, integrity and transparency, and I, you know, strive as much as possible to do the right thing, um, to be honest about the work that I'm doing. But again, at, at its core, um, for me, the, the Gettysburg Address issue, yes, publicly, you know, it was it was definitely the wrong decision, right, sending the Gettysburg Address. Um, but um, that decision was made, you know, against all of the staff, multiple staff wishes and multiple best practices in the industry. Um, the other thing that's kind of maybe different about me than 
maybe the previous directors is that I come from an archives and museum and library background. Um, you know, I literally started my <laughs> sort of first job experience in the library was when I was in third grade, you know, turning the computers on in the morning, right? Um, and so I have worked in and around libraries, archives, historical institutions for many years. And as a result, um, that, again, has informed my thinking. So I think about um, the decisions that I make and how they affect you know, our, our volunteers, right? Because I worked as a volunteer at an institution. I think about how it affects our interns because I worked in it as an intern um, at historical institutions. Um, I don't just think about it from that sort of administrative kind of top-down approach, but how does it affect every single layer of our institution? Um, and so that really informs my thinking and informs my decision-making. Christina Shutt becomes the executive director of the Abraham Lincoln Library and Museum this summer in June, and we thank you very much for spending time with us. Oh, thanks for having me today. It was great chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org.